Hi, I'm your host, Kelly Joe, and this is the Nourished Motherhood Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing together the voices of motherhood and helping women connect with others and themselves through the power of sharing honest, vulnerable stories. Because every woman deserves to have a place where her voice is heard. We believe that supporting mothers is one of the healthiest things we can do for our society. There's a balance of beauty and grit to be found in every woman's story. And we're so honored you're here to listen, connect, and grow with us. Let's dive in. Have you ever had an issue in the bathroom department or leaked a little pee when you cough, sneeze, or run? I know. While these are super common, especially after you've had children, these symptoms are not normal. Or how about this one? Have you ever experienced painful sex? then you're definitely going to want to tune in to today's guest expert episode with pelvic floor physical therapist, Melissa Sundberg. Melissa has over 20 years of experience specializing in pelvic health, including pregnancy and postpartum, bowel and bladder control, prolapse, pelvic pain, hip pain, and sexual dysfunction. Additionally, in her free time, she loves getting out in the Alaskan outdoors, skiing, hiking, fishing, and camping with her family. So what exactly are we talking about in today's episode? Well, you'll learn the 411 about what your pelvic floor is and why it's important to care for it, what signs or symptoms may indicate something's going on with your pelvic floor, and what you can do at home to strengthen your pelvic floor and when it might be a good idea to see a pelvic floor physical therapist. Plus, you can get some great tips on potty training and how to help your kiddos avoid future pelvic floor issues. This episode is so good and I can't wait to share it with you. So let's jump in. Welcome, Melissa. I am so excited to have you for the Nourish Motherhood community. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today all about pelvic floor health, why it's important, how we can care for it, and why working with a pelvic floor physical therapist like yourself is not just a good idea, but actually really needed for women and especially those of us in those childbearing stages. So thank you so much for being here with us. And yeah, just a big welcome. Yeah, thank you. So for those of us, like for those listening, can you just give us an idea? Where are you at in the world? What does life look like for you right now? I'm here in Anchorage, Alaska. I have been practicing as a PT for over 20 years. I originally kind of started in outpatient orthopedic, treating people for kind of all the things, shoulders, hips, knees, back. And then after the birth of my daughter, who's now, she'll be 13 in a couple of weeks, I really just was sort of disappointed in the lack of education mm-hmm. I received after I delivered, but just as far as like how to return back to, you know, everyday life, exercise and all those things. And so I really kind of started my interest about sort of more into pelvic health. And so here we are, you know, almost 13 years later. and. I am, you know, extremely busy. I see mostly women, but I also see men and some kids as well. So it's definitely an area that's much needed. Wow. That's, yeah, I think it's something we don't necessarily think a lot about. At least I didn't before I had a child. I never really thought about my pelvic floor. Can you talk a little bit more about like what your pelvic floor is, what it does, why it's even important? Yeah, everybody has a pelvic floor, men and women. It is basically three layers of muscles that do a couple different things with bowel, bladder, and sexual function. So it helps us go to the bathroom. It also helps us keep and remain continent so that we're not leaking urine, gas, or stool. It helps to support our pelvis and our hips, as well as our spine. And also it plays a big role in support. So when we think about support, we think about supporting the organs in our pelvis. We think about prolapse and just the the fascial integrity of the pelvis. And then of course, it has a sexual function in which, you know, if things aren't working well in our pelvic floor, we can see changes in sensation. We can experience pain or changes in orgasm. Hmm. That's so fascinating. So really, it does a lot of different daily functions. Like it's always at work for us is what you're saying. Yes. And oftentimes when I see people in the clinic, they come to me for one issue. For example, like they come to me for urinary incontinence and then oftentimes don't recognize or realize that maybe their years of constipation or pain in their hip is potentially kind of a connecting issue as well. 
That's so fascinating. So yeah, there's often like a whole constellation then of symptoms that you mm-hmm. see. That's so fascinating. Now, I feel like we spend there in our culture, there's a lot of emphasis on the core, like core health, core health. Can you tell me like, what is the relationship between your core and your pelvic floor? So our pelvic floor muscles work together with our deep core muscle system. And that includes our diaphragm, which is our breathing muscle up in our lower ribs are also our deepest abdominal layers, which is our transversus abdominis muscle and the muscles in our back that help control stability, which are called multifidi. So we kind of refer to that as our core canister and our pelvic floor makes up the floor of that canister. And they all four muscles work together as a team and to help give us good support of our trunk and our pelvis and our hips and help manage our pressure well in our system. The tricky part is that oftentimes some programs, exercise programs, or, you know, are focusing mostly on things like kegels by themselves or all abdominal exercises when really we need to sort of focus on, you know, or include exercises that sort of work the whole system, Mm. not just the individual muscles. So sometimes kegels can be good, but what you're saying is they can also like cause more harm than good at times too. Absolutely. Sometimes they can be sort of detrimental or it's not training the system the way that it's intended to work. Mm, Interesting. That's so fascinating. So Okay. So you mentioned like urinary incontinence. So for women who, especially they're postpartum and, you know, they've just been told, you just kind of got to deal with it. So if they're running or laughing or crying and they happen to let out a little bit of pee, like it's just said, Oh, that's normal. That's part of motherhood. And what do you see in your practice? Is that that's common, but is that actually normal? Yeah. So it is common, but it's not normal. And I think unfortunately our society does and providers often sort of give women the okay to just say, you know, that's normal for after having a baby, which I would totally disagree with. Because oftentimes, there's very simple things, especially early on after having a baby that could make a big difference and reduce leaking, whether it's a couple drops or whether it's, you know, much more. And oftentimes, I, I can't remember the exact numbers as far as studies, but it often takes women, I think, on average, three to five years to bring up issues with their provider about something as simple, you know, something like incontinence. And then it typically even takes them a couple more years beyond that first initial conversation before they'll actually do something about it. I think overall, that's that trend is improving. But I think it's not uncommon for me to see women you know, 10 years after they've had a baby, 20 or 30 years after they've had a baby for them to tell me that they've just been leaking kind of off and on, you know, off and on since their delivery, you know, which for some of those women was quite some time ago. Wow. I mean, so it sounds like there's a lot of women suffering or experiencing these issues unnecessarily and that there's Mm -hmm. quite a bit that can be done both at home and with a specialist like yourself, right? Right. Wow. That's a... That's a big deal. Why do you think, do you think it's like we don't bring it up just because there's stigma around it? Or what do you think that could help change the system? I think part of it is maybe the stigma. I think a lot of women, unfortunately, think that they're the only ones that are experiencing issues, even though I try to really let them know that, I mean, I would say most women have some issues of some sort after having a baby. I think another issue is that our OBGYN providers don't do a good enough job of screening. I think sometimes they're, you know, they kind of just do some quick questions like, you know, how's everything going? Not specific questions like, are you leaking with sneezing, coughing, you know, or are you having pain with, you know, this? So I think it's kind of twofold. You know, I wish that providers would do a much better job of screening. And I think sometimes at six weeks postpartum, especially for postpartum women, there's so much other things, so many other things going on, you know, they're sleep deprived, they're working on, you know, nursing, you know, I mean, there's all these other things going on that sometimes I I don't think we have the capacity to maybe even deal with other things until later. And by that time, we're done seeing our OB providers. And then I think life happens. And then, you know, months and years go by, and we're still sort of dealing with the same, you know, issues, or maybe we're, you know, worsening issues at that point. 
That makes a lot of sense. You know, you mentioned a lot of women often probably feel like they're the only one. Can we talk about like, what are some symptoms that someone might be experiencing, whether it's like painful sex or it's through pregnancy, through postpartum? What are some things that if a woman is experiencing these issues or symptoms that might be an indicator that there's something they can do for their pelvic floor? Yeah. So kind of starting with bladder, of course, these are things like, of course, like leaking and leaking. I tell women is, you know, two drops to wetting their underwear to, of course, peeing their pants. So it could be along that whole spectrum, not being able to start their urine stream. So sometimes women will say that they sit on the toilet and it takes a while for their stream to start. So, you know, typically we should be able to sit down and go pretty quickly, but some women, it takes kind of like a minute or two or even longer, not being able to empty completely. So if they're not able to empty their bladder, they feel Mm -hmm. like they go and then they're, they feel like they need to go, you know, 30 or 60 minutes later. Of course, any discomfort or pain with emptying their bladder could be, you know, an indication that something's not working optimally. In regard to bowel function, constipation, and constipation is kind of a tricky one because many people that are constipated don't think they're constipated. So I always Hmm. ask, you know, like how often are they going? So by definition, constipation means that you're having a bowel movement every one to two days. And that could be, you know, one time a day, three times a day or every other day. And all of those are considered normal. But I often have folks that are going, you know, every three or four days, or they're really having to take a lot of supplements to be able to go. Mm-hmm. Not that supplements are necessarily bad, but you know, like they have to work pretty hard to have a bowel movement. Any incontinence of stool or gas, which happens, especially postpartum, but it can be happening, of course, before pain or bleeding with bowel movements, which could be indicative of hemorrhoids or a fissure. And then of course, with sex, any pain, or for sure pain with penetration or deeper pelvic pain with a deeper penetration and changes in orgasm. Sometimes women will notice that maybe the intensity of the orgasm has changed and that can be an indication that their Hmm. pelvic floor is not working optimally. And then any ongoing back or hip or pelvis pain. Of course, when we're pregnant, that typically tends to be more kind of in the pubic bone in the front often or in our SI joints in our back, but of course, back or hip pain, a few of our hip muscles are also pelvic floor muscles. So that whole area works definitely very intimately together. Mm. Wow, that's so fascinating. Like, I think that's so helpful to know of like, any of those, there might be other issues going on, but certainly the pelvic floor is impacted so that anyone tuning in who might be experiencing those should really be thinking, oh, pelvic floor, pelvic floor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so powerful. Yeah. Wow. So how does working with like, I guess there's a couple different things then we can do. You can do exercises at home, right? Different postures, but can you kind of like walk us through? I'm new. I just as like, I just identified with some of those symptoms you mentioned. What's the best next step for me? Yeah, I would recommend that you do connect with a pelvic PT so we can do kind of a full assessment. Oftentimes, like I mentioned earlier, it's not just the pelvic floor that's possibly kind of, you know, it's not just a weak pelvic floor that needs kegels. Mm. Oftentimes, it could be something, you know, especially if we have a newborn or a little one, you know, how we're sitting or standing, how we're managing our breath and our pressure in our abdomen. It could be, you know, we've got ongoing back or hip tightness that's contributing to sort of what's happening in our pelvic floor. So, and I'm happy to share, there is two websites that have a list of all, you can look up a local pelvic PT in your area via like your zip code. So I will make sure to get get that to you so you can post that. And so I think that connecting and having a good evaluation, and I think in a perfect world, especially for new moms, I think this should be the standard of care. You know, after you see your OB provider at six weeks, I think that should also include a referral straight to a pelvic PT, even if you're you're like, well, I'm doing pretty okay. But I think sometimes it's good just to sort of get a check-in, even if it's just a one-time visit, because oftentimes many of us are wanting to get back to exercise or work that maybe requires lifting. 
nurses, you know, oftentimes I see many nurses that are trying to get back and they have to be able to lift 50 to 75 pounds. And, you know, at six to 12 weeks, that's a lot of weight um, on a body and a core that's still recovering from a delivery. So I think that even just a one-time check-in is a great thing for any new mom. Mm, That's awesome. Would you say that like working on your pelvic floor is important like before pregnancy or even in pregnancy? Are there benefits to that? I think, of course, I think that's good. I think, especially if you identify with any of those symptoms, I think that that is an indication, even if, you know, you're 16. And and I can also provide a link to a quiz that folks can take. And then if they answer yes to any of those questions, then that would be kind of an indication that maybe that it would be helpful for them to connect with a pelvic PT. So I think if people answer, you know, if they are finding that they're having some issues, then I think that would be good at any age, whether, um, I mean, I saw a three-year-old on Friday in the clinic who is having incontinence. And I think the mom had taken my postpartum class. And so I think she was just sort of mindful of some of the behaviors and things that were her daughter was experiencing. And so, and sometimes it's just something as simple as just making sure, you know, that we're not kind of creating some non-optimal habits with going to the bathroom. You know, many of us aren't taught how to pee or poop when we're kids, right? We kind of put our kiddos on the on the potties and just let them go. And then people typically figure out how to get stuff out, but it may not necessarily be the most efficient or effective way. Mm. And so often I'm seeing those folks in the clinic at 20 and 30 years old, and they've been having things like constipation or, you know, for 10, 20 years. So my gosh. Okay. So while we're on that, like, what are some tips for especially young parents who have toddlers who are potty training? What can we do to like help set our kids up for success? Yeah, I think the biggest one is making sure that when they are sitting on the toilet, when you start potty training is to make sure that they have a good stool under their feet, you know, whether it's one of the potty chairs, so their feet can be on the floor, or getting something like a squatty potty that allows them to put their feet solidly on the ground, and they don't have to work quite so hard when they're sitting on the toilet, I think is first and foremost, number one priority. If a kid is dangling on the toilet, they're going to be tensing muscles, and that's going to be pretty counterproductive. Number two would be if they are having issues like bedwetting or incontinent urinary incontinence. Typically, you know, there's all sorts of things, watches. I have parents that are waking their kids up every two hours at night to go to the bathroom so they don't want the bed, which of course affects the, everybody's sleep yeah. and such. But typically, most of the issues that we experience as kids is links back to how their bowel movements are doing. So oftentimes kids that are bedwetting are often constipated and the parents don't necessarily notice that or, you know, aren't like kind of connecting the two. The other thing, interestingly enough, is often those kids also have a dairy intolerance or uh, sensitivity and gluten as well. But dairy tends to be the one that's a little bit more prevalent than gluten. So sometimes just removing dairy and helping them kind of poop a little bit easier and better can kind of clean up their bedwetting issues. Wow. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to think about having maybe multiple things going on, right? Maybe a food sensitivity, but also then your pelvic floor is directly impacted. And that there's like this relationship where if they continue on, they can, they just kind of have that compounding effect, right? Yeah. And I think especially with kids, another milestone or kind of pivotal point is when they go into school. So kindergarten and first grade, kids don't want to pee or poop at school. So they hold it. And then that, of course, leads to a whole host of other issues and potentially that muscle tightness where they then they have a hard time going. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, which of course links back to constipation often or not going to the bathroom when they're at school. So and that's kind of when we start to see another sort of kind of influx of symptoms is, you know, not just when they're potty training, but also as they go into school, because, you know, some teachers are how they are let out to go to the bathroom is different. And so they can create some behavioral issues with going to the bathroom. Interesting. Yeah, I would have, I mean, I'm not quite to that stage yet with yeah. our kids. And so that's really fascinating. Do you have any tips too, for like talking with your kids as they go? into school to kind of help encourage them to 
I don't know, or even conversations you could have with a teacher or to make this, I don't know, to be able to change the situation. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I guess just being mindful and knowing your child's bathroom routines is important. And if there is an issue, then I think making sure that you kind of involve the teacher and potentially the school nurse so that they can potentially set the the child up on a routine where they can be excused to go to the bathroom, I think is an important thing. And I actually had to do that with one of my kiddos because they were not going at school. And then she was having stomach aches and then didn't want to do school. And so I kind of, we just had a conversation with the teacher and, you know, and then that seemed to sort of solve that. But I mean, it, it happens a lot. And I don't think, you know, I, I think that's something that we, I mean, maybe we as pelvic PTs and teachers, and I think it's probably been more important for that knowledge to get to those younger teachers, because I think it happens a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happens in adults. We call, you know, the shy bladder or people that don't poop out in public. I mean, I, I think I had a couple of people this last week that they never poop outside of their house. Like there's, you know, they just hold it until they get home, which is not necessarily helpful for muscles and, and all, you know, that whole area. So, and I think it absolutely happens a lot with kids. And I don't think we realize it until of course there's other, you know, just symptoms. So. Wow. Yeah, that's really, I feel like that's so insightful for us parents too, to be able to like be mm-hmm. mindful of certain things, because if we could help deal on this side of things, well, it's still relatively easy so that our kiddos don't have to 20, 30 years down the road, you know, mm-hmm. have these major issues. I mean, it's always ideal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Wow. Okay, backing up. So if someone's going to come and do pelvic floor PT, like, obviously, you know, that region is a really like sensitive, you know, topic or like just, you know, it's very personal. What does mm-hmm. it look like when someone comes in to like work with you? Cause I've been surprised by all the different types of, it's not just one thing, I guess we work on when we come in and have a session. So can you kind of like unpack what it would look like to come work with a pelvic floor physical therapist and some of the different things a woman might experience in a session? Yeah. So Typically on a first session with me, of course, we take a a pretty thorough history. I want to know all about your pelvic floor. I want to know about, you know, any other medical history, surgeries, injuries, even something as simple as an ankle sprain or, you know, a sports injury that happened as a teenager is helpful. You know, sometimes women that I see as a new mom had a soccer injury when they were a teenager that potentially kind of started some of their pelvic floor (laughs) you know, issues. And, and again, they maybe didn't necessarily realize that. So I, it's always good for me to kind of get a a good detailed history. The other thing is that then we kind of look at just general motion and mobility of not of your, you know, hips and back. And just like, are you able to, you know, get up and down from a chair without having to, you know, change or modify things because of pain or tightness, checking for muscle strength, and how you coordinate the muscles in your abdominals and around your hips and pelvis. And, and then really, like, I feel like I always take the first visit to really just give moms some good things that they can start doing at home. I know some women want to come when they see me, they want me to sort of just go and evaluate their pelvic floor straight, you know, from the beginning. But like we mentioned earlier, there's so many different things that can affect the pelvic floor. And I, you know, I I think especially after you have a baby, you know, you're lifting a baby all the time, you're holding, you know, you're rocking, you're doing a lot of physical work. So it's not just the pelvic floor muscles that need to kind of just, you know, to be checked on. So, and so typically for the first visit, we'll kind of do that. And then oftentimes, you know, if they're still having issues with bowel or bladder or pain, or they had a vaginal birth and they have a scar, you know, then we can often do a pelvic floor muscle assessment, Mm. you know, then that typically is done intravaginally. And we again, assess those three layers of the muscles. And then often a check kind of that scar. And I think the biggest thing that's most helpful for most patients with that is like, what's actually happening when you kegel? Because Mm. most women, and I think the number, I think the statistic is like 74% of women are doing kegels incorrectly. Whoa. Which is huge. That's most yeah. of us. 
That's most, yeah. I mean, nobody teaches us how to kegel really either, right? I mean, that's not something that unless we've taken a specific class or, you know, so I think, you know, what's happening in those muscles when you kegel and then what's happening when you relax, okay? And then what's happening when you bear down, bear down to have a bowel movement, bear down to pass, you know, like what's happening? Like, are you able to coordinate all three of those? And then if you're having challenge in any one of those, then that's kind of oftentimes where we spend especially our initial time is, and more often than not, I'm teaching women how to relax and lengthen their pelvic floor versus tighten and kegel, Mm. at least initially, because many women tend to hold our, you know, we tend to hold our pelvic floor muscles, you know, more tense because our pelvic floor muscles are fight or flight muscles. So anytime we're stressed or anxious or worried about anything, we often unconsciously tense up in our hips and pelvis and pelvic floor muscles. And so I think we then we create these holding patterns in our body, much like, you know, tightness in our shoulders Mm -hmm. and such. And so, and then that's going on for years. And so, and then that just becomes the normal pattern for how our body, you know, moves and is. So often I'm trying to help women connect better to their pelvic floor and then just sort of retrain how those muscles move to make sure there's good motion there. And then, and then make sure that they can kegel well and relax well and lengthen well. So they can, you know, have sex without pain, you know, have easy and complete bowel movements and, you know, not have leaking of urine, et cetera. So... Hey friends, and welcome to this brief podcast intermission brought to you by Nourished to Flourish. Nourished to Flourish is our signature course designed to help women build a strong, healthy foundation from preconception through pregnancy, delivery, and postpartum recovery. We start with fertility, diving deep into the biology of your hormones and menstrual cycle, learning how to balance your blood sugar and fuel your body, and uncover the power of epigenetics. Then we move into pregnancy support with a step-by-step guide for what to expect in each trimester and every doctor's appointment. Plus, how to ask for and get the support you need at each stage of your pregnancy. Next, we focus on delivery, specifically preparing for labor, understanding your pain management options and possible interventions, and being ready for your first 72 hours with your new baby. Finally, we focus on your birth as a new mother, with a focus on the five key elements of postpartum recovery and cultivating a truly supportive network around you. This foundational course is practical and powerful. You won't find a more holistic approach or emotionally connected resource to walk with you through each moment leading up to conception, every moment of pregnancy, and into your postpartum recovery. You can explore the course yourself at nourishedmotherhood.com forward slash nourished dash to dash flourish or click the link in the show notes. Becoming a mom is a wild ride. You deserve personalized support at every step of your journey. Wow. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I feel like before I really was ever aware of the pelvic floor, when I had very limited knowledge, I thought I was just a rock star because I'm like, yeah, I can do Kegel. Like I was so good at the tightening of everything. Mm -hmm. And I had never really heard someone talk about relaxing and being able to release And that is the hardest part for me by far. And I think Mm -hmm. the source of a lot of my issues when it comes to my pelvic floor, but I'm curious too, how does, I think a lot of women in our culture, especially because there's a certain like body image, like are told to like suck it in, like at least growing up for me, like I was always told like suck in your pooch, you know, like how does that impact your, is that like also contribute to this tightening? Yes. So one of the other big things I work on with women and men too, for that matter, is how we manage pressure in our abdomen. So basically in our our bodies. And, And oftentimes I talk about it kind of from our diaphragm, our breathing muscle down to our pelvic floor. But really we can create pressure kind of in our throat as well. So some people hold tension up top. So sometimes that pressure is coming even from even higher. And I always think of it as a balloon. If you take a balloon and you think about squeezing a balloon from the top, where does that pressure go? It goes Mm. down, right? Mm -hmm. And what's down is our pelvic floor. So for those of us that maybe are, you know, often maybe holding our breath when we get up and down from a chair, when we pick up our baby, 
or maybe when we're exercising. But also if you think about that balloon as well, and we squeeze the middle of the balloon, which of course is where our abdominals are, the diaphragms on the top Mm -hmm. and the pelvic floors on the bottom. And we squeeze the middle of the balloon, we've got pressure, extra pressure going down, and we also have extra pressure going up. And so and, and what you know, kind of what you mentioned, as far as sort of that, you know, holding your belly in, I think is extremely common. I think it's something that we are taught, you know, to have good posture, you know, a lot of our body image is focused in and around our abdomen, right? And oftentimes, that's because of what we wear or just fashion, but also, you know, images we see on the computer or in magazines. But unfortunately, that can be creating a lot of issues and pushing pressure in places we don't want it, our pelvic floor, our diaphragm, and you know, our back. And sometimes that can be creating extra pressure and be contributing to a prolapse that somebody is experiencing. So it can be, you know, and I think that one's a really hard one because oftentimes for many women, that is something that's hardwired in their like DNA is to just hold that belly tight. And oftentimes they don't even realize they're doing it until somebody like me talks to them about it. And then and then they really, they come back the next day or the next time I see them and they're like, I hold my abs tight all day. It's challenging. But, you know, it, for some, as soon as we kind of help them relearn how to, you know, hold their abdominals a little bit differently. And then sometimes there's, you know, many of their symptoms can go away because it can affect, you know, GI and gut health as well, of course, as pelvic floor function and health as well. That's fascinating. What are some of the like, the few things are like simple things we can do to start changing that to go from holding our abs all the time. Is there something like you can share for that? Yeah. One of the things I think is just being more aware of it. I mean, I think for, like I said, many of us don't even realize that we're doing it. I mean, Mm -hmm. two things I, I often will have people pay attention to is, are there certain clothes that you're wearing that either help you relax? or maybe increase your tensing. So for example, you know, nowadays leggings are, you know, kind of the fad and oftentimes they are high waisted. And for some women that actually helps them relax. And many women will often notice like, Oh, I don't leak as much when I wear my blue leggings, right? Or whatever. Versus sometimes certain pants, if they're lower, or if they just hit your abdomen funny, and you or they're, you know, they're lower, and so you're more conscious of your belly. Oftentimes, we're sort of holding that in a little bit more with those type of clothes. And so because, you know, we're just be, we're just a little bit more conscious of how everything looks. And so maybe kind of pay attention to like what clothes you feel good in, you know, body wise, as well as symptom wise. And then of course, wear the clothes that feel good. Don't wear the clothes that don't feel good. <laughs> yes. And then I think also just being more aware of, of your pattern. Because again, I, I think most of us don't even realize that we're doing it. And so, you know, I think just, you know, checking in when you're at a stoplight, are you, you know, tensing your abs? When you're, you know, sitting, nursing your baby, are you tensing your abs? When you're running three miles on your three mile loop, are you tensing your abs the whole time? You know, so just, just throughout the day with different activities. And then one of the biggest things I think that can be helpful is just adding a nice, exhale our breath out when you go up when you stand up or sit down because many of us are doing that kind of frequently throughout our day whether we're getting out of bed out of our chair for at work or at home up and down from the toilet and sometimes just by having you you know blow out like you're blowing out a birthday candle means that you're not holding your breath and you're not mm-hmm. holding your belly in so sometimes simple trick like that can make you know can sort of break up that cycle throughout the day. That's awesome. That's really helpful. I think especially too with a newborn, like to like I feel like it's also training. Like the sooner you can train yourself that way, because sometimes the brain, at least I've found it's hard for me to connect my brain to what my breath is doing. But mm-hmm. um how helpful that is when you're getting a car seat in and out of the car or lifting up your baby from the bassinet and putting them down. And so I think that's a really helpful tip of exhale. Yeah. 
And sometimes for my new, new moms that have like newborns, I'll have them, you know, cause you have your spot that you sit and nurse or feed your baby that maybe has your water bottle, you know, has all your, your things. And so sometimes I'll have them take a post-it and kind of put that on their water bottle or, you know, right next to their things. It just says exhale or breathe so that when they're sitting there, even in those first few weeks, they can really just have a little bit more insight. I mean, we, you know, when we've been doing the same patterns for decades, sometimes we may need some remind some visual reminders to kind of help change our habits and our patterns. So that's often can be a helpful tool as well. Hmm. Yeah. So going back to pregnancy, and there's so many changes that occur as our bodies are changing, our baby is growing, added pressure, the loosening of our joints and ligaments. How can we, as we're experiencing those changes, better support our bodies? What are some things we can do from home even to give ourselves that little extra support? Yeah, I think one would of course be just adding that exhale as you're, you know, changing positions or if you're lifting or moving things and and you have increased effort, really doing a better job of supporting our bodies when we're sitting or even lying down in bed. I think sometimes, you know, we think we don't necessarily need like an extra pillow here or there. But oftentimes, you know, just that little extra support can really make a big difference, especially you know, when we're sitting for, you know, 30, 60 minutes or lying in bed for hours at a time, I think that can be hugely helpful. And then sometimes, you know, some of us just need a little extra support. And that can be, of course, in the, you know, something as simple as a belt, or, you know, there's a whole variety of pregnancy, and even postpartum supports and belts that can often be a helpful tool just to kind of help people keep moving with less discomfort or symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't realize until like our last session, how much that extra support while sleeping, just a couple extra pillows. And I tend to, Mm -hmm. my husband's the one that loves all the pillows. And so normally I like, I have my one and I felt pretty good, but it's made such a difference. Just incorporating that like one small change at night has actually, I found taken a lot of the pressure off of my hips. And yeah, I cannot believe just how simple that was. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's not uncommon that it's just, you know, one simple pillow or, you know, just one tiny change can make a big difference. Yeah. Well, that's really powerful. Okay. Let's talk exercises. And what are some of the best programs you've seen for women? Like there's so many, you know, there's Pilates and there's HIIT workouts and there's Worth it. There's all these different things. What kind of would you recommend for us who like want to move more, but also want to be mindful of like our core and our pelvic floor? Do you have any go-tos? I mean, I think that's a pretty individual response. I mean, I think I, I often really try to encourage people, I mean, like to get back to doing things that they like, but also in that, you know, I think that the return back to exercise, whether it's running or hit or lifting exercise or lifting weights or even just walking, I think, you know, depends potentially on maybe their symptoms and sort of how and what's going on in their body. There are, you know, a lot of great things. And I think sometimes, especially initially in the first couple weeks, I think that people can do a, you can do a lot of kind of reconnecting of the core and muscle by just turning everyday life movements, you know, lifting baby, getting up and down from a chair, I mean, like into kind of, I guess, exercise of sorts. And oftentimes I really, I always try to remind moms, like how long it's been since they maybe did, you know, run or, you know, do CrossFit or a HIIT workout. And for some moms, like, you know, they, they're given that green light at six weeks at their six week appointment, but maybe it's been eight months since they did their home workout videos. And so, you know, a lot has happened in their body in that time frame. And so oftentimes I really try to help moms come up with exercises or a plan just to help rebuild kind of just good foundational strength with the goal to get them back to whatever exercise or, you know, activity they want to get back to, because sometimes maybe doing 
something as simple as like a push up from the countertop is challenging. Well, then if, if that's challenging, then probably doing planks or push ups on the floor is not going to be, you know, a good idea mm-hmm. at this time, even though that's what the video or the class is doing. So I think sometimes it's really just having to sort of meet the person with where they're at. And I, and I think that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the online programs that I've seen for, especially new moms, I mean, there are a few, there are some good ones, but some of them focus a lot on that abdominal tensing and kind of versus kind of bringing it back to the whole body. So I think sometimes, you know, there's a lot too much focus on that abs because, you know, diastasis is sort of the hot topic. You know, everybody's wants to know what their, you know, their gap is and how to shrink the gap. And, and typically the saying is, is that if a, if a program tells you that they can shrink your gap or get your gap to go down to nothing, then I would run the other way because typically that is not something like that, you know, that a trainer that has good uh, knowledge of postpartum bodies is, is something that they would say because it's not always guaranteed that your diastasis is going to go back to zero and that's okay. But unfortunately, I think, you know, a lot of the programs online, you know, some of them are from reputable trainers and people that have, a, you know, great background and pregnant and postpartum bodies and, and recovery. And some are just moms that have no training in exercise or personal training that, you know, did a program and now are kind of running their own, you know, exercise group online. And so I think sometimes you have to sort of kind of do your due diligence and and research to make sure that you're following somebody that has, you know, good knowledge of that. Hmm. That's yeah. Since you brought it up and I really wanted to go there too, like, can you just share what diastasis is? It is a hot topic, but many women might not even know what it is or yeah. What's the big deal? Yeah. So diastasis erecti is when your abdominal muscles kind of separate with birth. It happens to all of us. So some women I think are so upset that they have a separation but I try to, you know, remind them that we all have it when we are, you know, and, you know, nine months pregnant because everything's being stretched out. And so we typically measure it in three different spots at your belly button and above your belly button and below your belly button. And, and again, you know, after just newly postpartum and while you're pregnant, that's a pretty, you know, common thing. But oftentimes, even just soon after delivery, you can see some good you know, some changes that your abdominal wall will typically come back together, but it may not necessarily come back all the way to, you know, to zero. And that is actually okay. You know, I think what the research is telling us now is that we're not so worried about the gap as we are about if, you know, like if you kind of gently push into your belly, if you, if you is the tension that we feel when we push a little bit. So some women, you know, like, you can kind of lift your head and shoulders when we, and we can feel kind of some tightness under our fingers. Some women, when they, we do that same test, we feel like our fingers could kind of just go and go and go and go because they don't have the integrity of the fascia there. And so we're finding that that integrity and that tension is more important than like whether your gap closes. And I would say that that's Hmm. true with what I see kind of in the clinic as well. But I think unfortunately, you know, everybody's Googling diastasis. And, you know, so I think that's always a concern. The other thing is that many providers don't necessarily check it. I'm finding at week six and that's okay. You know, one thing that people really want to be mindful of is that they're not doming. So meaning when you lift your, you know, your head and shoulders up that your abs aren't sort of popping up as we Mm. call it doming or coning. And so if you're seeing that, and that can of course happen before pregnancy, I see it in men a lot, you know, those men that have those big bellies, and you'll see them when they kind of lift their head and shoulders up that their belly just kind of pops out. So it happens in both men and women. And so anyway, if they're seeing that, then that would be a, a good indication to kind of get you know, assessed by a pelvic PT. But I kind of find because I always ask women if they got assessed at their six week visit, and it's kind of a, I don't know, 50, 50, or even less than 50% that get checked. So I don't even know if the providers found a diastasis or assessed it. I don't 
think that they're giving any information. I think it's more just to give the mom a number or an objective mm-hmm. measure of, of where they are. So interesting. Yeah. And I know like the latest statistics are 40% of women don't even make it to their six week checkup postpartum, mm-hmm. which is a big deal too. Cause then all of this plus a whole lot more can go unchecked. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, kind of getting the information out to moms is, is tricky. So what else like, would you share that I don't know enough to ask you about, I guess, when it comes to the pelvic floor that you would want women to be like, to know? I think the other thing, especially with new moms that I, I that I hear time and time again, if you have had a C-section, you know, go in and see a pelvic floor PT. I see a lot of moms that either, you know, push and push and push and then end up having a C-section for one reason or another but don't really think about maybe the effects on their pelvic floor because they kind of did both, right? They did a lot of work on their pelvic floor during delivery, but then had a C-section. So they kind of have, you know, multiple things potentially going on there that would be worth getting assessed. And I think even women that just had, you know, maybe even a scheduled C-section, you know, connect with the PT because oftentimes doing some scar work at that cesarean scar is huge, is huge, not only to get in your abdominals back on track, but also to get your, you know, that deep core, your deep abs and your pelvic floor back on track. So even though it may not necessarily be, you know, directly pelvic floor, although, you know, when we're pregnant, we have nine, you know, 40 weeks of pressure on our pelvic floor. So even though maybe you didn't have a vaginal delivery, I think that there's still often things that are potentially happening in our pelvic floor that would benefit from getting checked out. And then even with a vaginal delivery, I think one thing that is often not sort of discussed or talked about is, of course, kind of doing some scar work after delivery, even if it's a tiny scar, because I found that folks that have had small scars, you know, your scar doesn't, the size of your scar doesn't necessarily indicate that. Mm injury or issues. And I think some women are, you know, kind of like, Oh, I, you know, I didn't tear or I have a small scar, but they're, you know, they often still can have some pelvic floor dysfunction. So, you know, and especially if you're having any pain, pain with intercourse or pain with using tampons or a pelvic exam, you know, then that's a good indication to check back in. I think, you know, oftentimes it's not uncommon that women, you know, that we're not potentially having much, if any, sex after having a baby. And so sometimes we don't really realize how uncomfortable that is until, you know, months later. But if you're having any discomfort, I think that would be, you know, something to get checked out pretty quickly. Mm, That's really insightful. Wow. What would you say, you know, kind of switching gears a little bit as we wrap up, this has been all so very, very insightful and helpful. And I think there's a lot of women listening who either can identify for the first time, like, oh, maybe this is something I need to deal with or just add some helpful things they can do at home. But I'm curious, what about like your practice right now? And, you know, being a pelvic floor physical therapist lights you up the most, would you say? I guess I love hearing just how their people are able to get back to doing certain things without symptoms or pain. And, you know, that varies from, I had a woman the other day that I saw that was able to have intercourse without pain, which for the first time in, you know, six or nine months, which was huge, you know, getting moms back to doing things they love and they miss like running or, you know, exercise is huge, especially now more than ever, because so many people, I feel like, especially us moms are sort of feeling kind of cooped up with, you know, the last year and a half of being kind of, you know, COVID and such. And so I think, unfortunately, you know, we keep putting others in front of, you know, others needs in front of ours. And so I think just, you know, getting moms back out moving and and feeling good. And then I think also, I find that, you know, especially with bowel and bladder issues, is that, you know, it really starts to affect sort of how and when people leave their house, you know, going to the store or just when they how. uh, And so I think just being able to improve and see improvements there allows these women to to not have to like time their, you know, their life around their bowel movements, which I've heard so many times, like, I can't leave my house until I go. 
And sometimes that's 11 or 12 o'clock. But we know we know that life happens before 11 and 12 o'clock, right? So I think that is pretty, you know, powerful. And that's really what kind of has kept me so inspired to keep working and really spreading the word about public health, because, you know, it can be pretty debilitating to women. And, you know, I think when we aren't able to, to do the things we love and to go and leave our house whenever we need to, not around our bowel or bladder schedule, then I think that is so important. And I'm just happy that I can be of help or a resource to help women do that. Oh my gosh. Wow, that's super encouraging and inspiring. And you, I mean, you are doing that. You are one of the most highly sought after PTs for public floor here in Anchorage, I know. And and just you provide so much education through Instagram and your website. And you do online classes as well, don't you? I do a postpartum kind of core and Pilates class. We do that four times a year. I'm currently teaching Renew Your Desire class with a local sex therapist. We're in week nine of week 12. And that will probably be wrapped. We're kind of be rolling out another class next year as well. So, you know, I love doing community education at the you know local shoe stores. Like I did one at Skinny Raven about with running CrossFit gyms. You know, I feel like educating people in the, the community is has been a better route to getting this information out versus sort of spending my time trying to educate doctors and providers. I feel like, you know, just giving people powerful, you know, giving them the power and the knowledge helps them sort of move forward with where they, you know, where they want to go. And then I also, about a year ago, actually taught a preteen and teen girls class about learning more about their body and bowel and bladder and menstruation. Again, kind of like when you mentioned earlier, is like the more we know about our bodies early on, then we have that knowledge and power to communicate that and you know, have that knowledge before we even think about having babies and, yeah. and um, our postpartum. Because oftentimes, many of our issues kind of start in our younger years, not for everybody. But I think any way we can improve things when we're younger, and just have more knowledge of what's going on with our body, then it gives us the power to, to make some changes. Well, it's so cool. Well, I know there's women listening who will want to connect with you more. What's the best space for them to get connected with you? My website is akpelvic.com. And that's probably has different ways to get a hold of me there. I am on Facebook. I believe it's Melissa Sunberg Pelvic PT. I'm also on Instagram at akpelvichealth. Email is usually the best way to get a hold of me or on any of those platforms. And yeah, I just love sharing information and helping as many people as I can, even just from educating them on sort of like you said, what's what's normal and what's common. And I think just giving people the power to to kind of seek the right person to help get them going in a better direction. That is so cool. And I what I love what you shared too. It's really there's never too late of a time to address your pelvic floor. You're never too old or too far past your delivery to really start to make a difference and to see real noticeable like changes, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you for taking your time to educate us, to share with us. It's been so insightful and I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Yeah, thank you. I hope you love this episode of the Nourished Motherhood Podcast. If you want to stay in touch and up to date with all the happenings over at the Nourished Motherhood Collective, make sure you're a part of our email community. Head on over to our website at nourishedmotherhood.com or click the link in our show notes to get on the list. 